This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. But we've spent an awful lot of time talking about trade agreements uh, with this country because obviously it has an impact on just not just the national economy, but the local economy as well. And paramount among those discussions, of course, is uh, is NAFTA. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, said that he wanted, well, he said tweak was the word he used some t- months ago, uh, the deal. Now it's starting to wonder if he wants a deal at all. A uh, top Trump official has said that uh, they want all kinds of concessions from Canada and Mexico in these NAFTA negotiations, but they're not going to offer anything in exchange. So it's a take-it-or-leave-it scenario. Marvin Wright has been following this story, of course, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his take on this. Hi, Marvin. How are you doing this morning? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Good. Uh, is, is, is this, again, negotiating bluster, or are we on to something here? Well, to be perfectly candid, we don't know. So uh, the fourth round ended in Washington. The fifth round of these talks are going to happen in Mexico City, but not until the middle of November. So we've got sort of three weeks of waiting time, and I think the Americans are using this time to, to lay out a possible scenario. Look, we want you folks to lose. We want to win. We want you to lose. We don't make any concessions. Take the deal or leave it or we'll rip it up. Now, that that's, uh, could be true. And that may happen. We will have to deal with that when it does. But it's also very typical of Donald Trump uh, strategy when he does deals. He bluffs and blusters and tells you he's going to do the worst to try to make you give him some concessions. The fact that there's a fifth round even scheduled tells me that there's going to be some reason to get together to talk. And not only is there a fifth round scheduled, but there's a sixth and a seventh round. And also the, uh, the um, parties have agreed to extend the talks into 2018. So if you're you're telling me that you're not going to make any concessions, then why are you still talking? I think some of this is bluff and bluster, but they truly want to wring out concessions, and they're doing everything they can, at least verbally, to scare us. I think Canada and Mexico are doing the right thing by not reacting to this, and I suspect between now and the middle of November, Canada and Mexico may do something on their own to toughen things up. For instance, uh, the Chinese have said to Canada, why don't we start talking about free trade? Oddly enough, if we were to even just have a courtesy call with China, I think that would send a very interesting signal back to Donald Trump that, okay, we want to deal with you, but you're not the only fish in the sea anymore. Uh, Maybe we'll go talk to the Chinese and see if we can do something with them. Uh, That would send, I think, a very interesting signal. Yeah, and and I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, former Trade Minister uh, James Moore, who was the minister, of course, in the Harper government, uh, who figures he knows something about this, and he does. He negotiated a few deals. I guess he was in on the uh, the uh, other negotiations for international trade deals as well. Uh, he says that making that phone call to China is really just going to anger the United States to the fact that they're even going to get more obstinate about that. Is is that a risk? Sure. You know, I, I mean, this is the great thing in negotiations that aren't being driven by logic but being driven by emotion. Yes, I could call the Chinese. And that could anger Donald Trump and Mr. Ross, and they're going to be even firmer in their position. Or it could show them that we are not just going to roll over and play dead for the Americans. Uh, Oddly enough, I think the Canadian citizens here are feeling a bit like they are uh, in a game of tennis, if you will. They're feeling torn. We, We, generally speaking, when you survey Canadians, we want a free trade deal with the United States. But also Canadians say we shouldn't just give away everything to get the deal. We want it but not at all costs, and I think this is the game we're playing now. We want to deal with you, America. We're even prepared to negotiate. That negotiate means we'll give you a little room here, you give us a little room there. The fact that you want an all-or-nothing scenario, that's just not going to fly, and if you're going to keep pursuing down that road, then you know it's just not going to work. But I'm not prepared to throw the baby out with the bathwater at this point. I, I think there's still some hope here. I think some of this is just bluster. You mentioned that uh, there are more talks that are scheduled, uh, but you remember the, when the last round broke up uh, just a few days ago, <laughs> yes. uh, it did not look optimistic. They no. said they were going to meet again in about four or five weeks, and, and I know there's a date scheduled for that. But I, I got the sense from the comments uh, from both sides, well, the, the Mexicans not so much, but the Canadians and the Americans, 
that there was probably really not any need to because there's just there was just nothing there. There was nothing, not common agreement, nothing that to build any of these talks on right now. I mean, you know, both Lighthizer and and uh, in our case Freeland just seem to be going back and forth saying it's well their fault. No, it's their fault, and that that's not much of a foundation for future talks, wouldn't you think? Yeah, fa- fair enough, Bill. Although I think what we all need to remember is that there are something like twenty six panels. So you take the big team and break it into twenty six small teams who have been doing negotiating, and many of them have come to some some great consensus and are at least moving towards great consensus. Now, there are four or five big ticket items where we seem miles and miles apart, but there's dozens of items that we actually seem very close on to a deal. And, and this is another interesting question, I think, that will confront the Americans if they take this all-or-nothing attitude. If they have been able to successfully, or we, with us, we have been able to successfully negotiate many, many parts to the deal, Okay, we don't have a dairy thing sorted out. We don't have the dispute resolution sorted out. We don't have the auto industry sorted out at this time. But if we are getting consensus on these other kinds of things, including intellectual property rights, do you want to walk away? That's why I think this is a little more bluster than, than really fact in their part, because they're getting concessions and they're getting deals on things they want. We've got to sort these out, Bill. And so if I take you back 23 years ago to the last round of NAFTA or the first round of NAFTA negotiations, it almost fell apart in the very last hours because of that dispute resolution mechanism. They negotiated to the very last minute, but a deal was found. And I think you're going to see the same high drama here. You'll see uh, it, it could happen in Mexico City. It could even happen in a future round where somebody storms out of the proceedings, declares that nothing's going to work, nothing's going to happen. But I think some of this is grand theater. I, I still think people see there's some value overall to having this kind of a trade deal in place. But it's not just the negotiators. It's not just Wilbur Ross and Lighthizer that are talking like this. It's Trump himself now. I mean, he did an interview the other day on Fox News, go figure, uh, where he pretty much reiterated exactly what Ross was saying. Uh, he speaks in half sentences, so it's kind of hard to actually get any any thrain to the thought here. But he says, in order to have a resolution, because right now Mexico and Canada have such a great deal, it's so good that it's going to be hard for them to get used to the fact that it can't be that way anymore. So he's still preaching that gospel that there's nothing in this deal for the United States and, and everything for Canada and Mexico, which basically is not true, but I guess obviously his, his base are buying into that. Oh, absolutely they are. And, and look, I, I can't actually tell you what Donald Trump believes because he keeps moving on this. As you pointed out, in January he said in terms of Canada, we just need a few tweaks. I really need to make some changes for Mexico. Now Canada has moved into full throttle mode. It's bad. We've got to, we've got to really you know, do something about those Canadians. So I don't know what Donald Trump really honestly believes in all of this. What I, I, think, I, I think I can add to this discussion, though, Bill, is as uh, Canadian negotiators, Christia Freeland, or even for that matter our Prime Minister and Mr. Trudeau, uh, certainly I would be doing some contingency planning now to say, well, okay, what happens if we don't get a deal? What's, what's our plan B here? We've got a free trade deal with the European Union. Uh, Theresa May has suggested there could be a fast-track free trade deal with Britain. Uh, what, what are we going to do? And I might even seek some legal clarification because, uh, Bill, when we signed NAFTA, we actually had an existing deal with the United States called the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. Uh, that agreement was never nullified. It was simply put on hold, and the NAFTA agreement superseded it. So I'd be looking for a legal opinion. If NAFTA gets torn up and dies, do we default back to the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, or we default even further back? I'm willing to bet Donald hasn't even asked that question, what happens when he tears it up. I think he thinks there's no trade deal at all, but I think there'd be a great legal opinion to say that the previous trade deal comes back into force. So I'd want to get some Plan B and maybe even Plan C contingencies in place. All right, let's let's play what if for just a second. Sure. Uh, you know, we were speculating a few months ago about the U.S. getting up and walking away from the deal. It kind of looks like he's trying to force Canada and Mexico to do that. If that happens, though, uh, you've just talked about some of the the possible ramifications vis-a-vis the technicalities and the legalese of this. I get that, but what does it do for the future of of any other talks about this deal now? I mean. If, if the one side, this case the Americans, is simply saying, we, we're not even going to negotiate, is there any sense at all in talking? I mean, is, is, is it over and done with then, and we just look for, for a brighter horizon someplace else? Yeah, so I'm, I'm one of those optimistic people, Bill, that think there's always a point to talk, uh, you know, even take it away from trade to even things like peace negotiations or the North Koreans. 
many people draw lines in the sand, but they can be temporary lines, and talking is the only way to try to move those lines. The fact that they are going to get together and there's going to be another round of discussion, I, I think that's all positive signs. Now, what happens at these negotiations, and I think one of these times, if somebody comes to the final communique at the end of one of these rounds of discussions and says, well, that's it, we're not planning any more talks, kind of like, for instance, the way the, the colleges and the uh, teachers at the colleges said, well, that's it, we're not talking anymore, strike is on. You know, that's always dangerous in my mind. I'd like to see us continue talking. I don't think Canada would be the one to walk out. Now, oddly enough, we'd probably see the Mexicans be the first one to walk out, partly because they have an election next year, and partly that the current party in power in uh, Mexico does not want to be seen as caving into Donald Trump. So if you had some unproductive discussions, I think the Mexicans might be the first ones to walk away. And that, that might be all we need to help, again, put some pressure on, on these different parties at the table to try to keep the thing moving. I don't know. I just think it's going to be grand theater, and we shouldn't overreact to any one statement or any one move at any one time because the, 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 these things get a life of their own as you go forward. Yeah, but what, what happens to us and what happens to the relations between the two countries if we start negotiations with uh, the U.K. or with, uh, oh, it could be China, I guess. It could be uh, two or three different options at this stage right now. That's, that's kind of like stepping out and dating somebody else when you're engaged, isn't it? Well, you know, yes, yes, I understand exactly <laughs> what you just said there. It can be like that, but this is also a great big world, and whether the United States likes it or not, yes, it's the dominant economy in the world, but it's not the only economy in the world. The European Union collectively is actually a bigger economy than the United States. Now, we have not done as much trade with the European Union as the Americans because it's just harder to get products across the Atlantic. But I think as I look ahead, we've got to strengthen those ties. And the same thing goes the other direction when we start thinking about Asia, whether it's a free trade deal with uh, China or it's the Trans-Pacific Partnership 11, those are the 11 remaining partners, including Japan, the third largest economy in the world, you know, I, I think that would send an interesting signal. Now, would it anger Donald Trump? Sure it would, because Donald likes getting his own way. But he needs to be reminded, I think, and, and maybe even constantly reminded, that America is not in a position to dictate to the world. It's not the economy it was in 1950 that so dominated the world. And in fact, Bill, everyone here needs to remember that probably in less than 10 years, China is going to replace the United States as the largest economy in the world. In less than 10 years, that's, that's hard for us to ignore. Yes, we want to deal with our neighbor to the south. We share so much in common. We share a continent, what have you. But we would also be foolish to think that we should not be talking to these other players because ultimately they'll prove to be just as important or more important than the United States. Is, is one of the reasons they, uh, they seem to be playing this little game with us now because we are having those discussions? I mean, the, Trump may not be aware of what's going on, but certainly other folks around him are aware of the fact that, that there are others that are enticing Canada right now to, to cut some sort of a deal. Yeah, I, I, I wish it was that. I, I think what it is, Bill, is that uh, many Americans see Canada as a, a milk toast nation, that uh, we, we apologize even when we're in the right, that we are easy to roll over, we're easy to influence, that uh, you know, we, we, can be, we can be pushed over easily. And I think that's what Donald Trump's trying to do. He is always a bit of a bully in the way he lives his life and the way he acts, and I think he thinks that bullying would work with us to the north. And, and I just think we have to show him that we're a little more sophisticated and, and there's a little more to us than he first meets his eye and that we've got nothing to be ashamed of here. And again, I'm going to say full marks to Christia Freeland and her teams. I think so far in the negotiations, the Americans have been surprised, have been surprised at the resilience of Canada and for that matter, Mexico, and that we aren't rolling over. I think Donald really believed that he could bark out something and we'd all bend over backwards to give it to him. And I think he's been shocked that we're not doing that. This is a, a bit of a, a problem anyway, because, I mean, we're kind of shooting in the dark here because we're not even sure uh, what the demands are at this stage. I mean, we can speculate, and, you know, we've talked about the supply management deal and, and, and telecommunications and things of this nature, but, the, you know, in, in the absence of any clear information about what the United States is actually asking of Canada and Mexico, uh, it's pretty hard to decide whether or not we're doing the right thing here. Yes, that's, that's fair enough, and that had been the problem until that fourth round. Now, that's finally when America began to dot the I's and cross the T's on some of their demands, and we saw a fairly clear set of demands around the auto industry. First, that the auto industry would move to 85% content, North American content. Now, 
as a Canadian, I don't think any of us have a problem with that. That could mean more jobs in North America. It was actually the auto industry itself who pushed back and said, you've set an unrealistic goal. There's no way we can get to 85%. There are just some things that are manufactured in the world that we just don't make in North America lower that. And then his second part, and that was the scary part, was that more than half of that 85% should be American-only content, not Canadian-Mexican. And that then gets you into this whole question of, well, how do you define what is Canadian content or Mexican content or, for that matter, American content? And, and you just throw those things out there like this all makes sense in the world. It's a lot more difficult, and I think this is the question when we get together for round five. Uh, let's, let's talk about how you define some of these things. Let's talk to, about how fast you want to implement some of these things. Maybe we can find some common ground. Uh, but at the last round, they tossed these proposals out. That's also why... These previous rounds had been scheduled for every three weeks. Now it's four weeks apart because there's a lot for us to study coming out of round four. Well, we can just hold our breath and see who's <laughs> going to blink first, I guess. Marvin, thanks as always for this. Great talking with you. Anytime, Bill. Marvin Ryder, of course, of the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Your hydro rates could be going up in the long term. The Ontario Liberals say that hydro bills will be increasing in the next decade by a about 43%. A little hard to swallow, isn't it? Tom Adams is an independent energy and environmental consultant. He's been following this file for a number of years now, including the latest uh, announcement from the government. And Tom joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to discuss this. How are you this morning, Tom? Off of the morning, Bill. How are you? Good. Listen, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the way the government rolled this out yesterday, uh, their long-term energy plan. Because, uh, you know, when, when Bonnie Lissick, the, uh, the auditor, released her report some time ago and said this is going to cost us a lot more later on, they, they foo-fooed that and said that's not true at all, but they kind of admitted it yesterday, didn't they? Oh, yeah. And it, it is an admission of the obvious, right? Like, if you take a chunk of your uh, monthly power bill, you put it on the credit card, and you accumulate a credit card balance, it's going to ding you in the end. That's the way, you know, reality works. And this, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some admission yesterday from the liberals that that's actually what's going to happen. Uh, and, and again, it's the old idea, okay, we're going to try to reduce rates now, and, and but you're going to have to pay for this a little bit later on. But this is a significant increase. I mean, they're talking about going up 43% in 10 years. How does that compare with the, with the history of the bills and the way they've gone in the last little while? Well, um, uh, it, it, it's, it, we're, we're still on track. Um, uh, this is very much a kind of a part of the piece. It's the kind of pace of increases that we've seen in recent years. I must say, I don't put too much stead in the long-term forecasts that uh, the government's putting out. I, I really think that the, the near term um, uh, is, 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 you know, a, a better or what, they, what they're talking about in their so-called long-term energy plan is really about the election that's coming in 2018. As soon as that election's over, um, uh, I, you know, I, I think no matter which party is, is uh, you know, uh, wins power, they're they're simply going to have to reverse this um, uh, silly plan of uh, uh, paying a chunk of the power bill on the credit card because that just doesn't work. Well, it's uh, heading towards wintertime. It's going to get cold. We're going to start using more hydro. We all know that. And we all know the horror stories that we heard over the last couple of winters as a result of that. So is this a stopgap measure just to get us through the next seven months? Well, it's just straight-up vote-buying. You know, it's, it's the same kind of casual uh, thinking that's short-term type of thinking that's gotten us into these problems in, in the first place. The, the the real solutions for uh, Ontario's power problems are to address the, the underlying costs, not not simply just pushing costs off into the future. And and I must say, you know, I'm I am you, you, you know that I'm the last person to defend um, uh, the Liberal government's energy policies, but there were little bits and pieces in what they announced yesterday that that I think are genuinely good news, such as. Uh, well, it, it, addressing the question of rising overall cost of power. So one of the really, really stupid things that they've announced that they're going to stop is they said uh, yesterday that they're no longer going to provide direct subsidies to large industrial customers, um, uh, uh, subsidizing those large industrials 
to install what's called low displacement generation on their own facilities. So this is, you know, some uh, um, a manufacturer or, um, you know, a, a metal refinery or something like that, uh, a chemical plant. They have now for a long time been able to tap into um, uh, uh, subsidies paid for by electricity rate payers to install generation uh, in order to displace their load on the grid. Well, the problem with that is that Ontario already has a gigantic surplus of excess power generation. We're giving away free power to neighboring utilities in Michigan and New York. Uh, um, we often give free power to Quebec. Um, so while we're giving away free power, we're at the same time subsidizing people to install more low displacement generation. It was a stupid, stupid idea for a long time you know, that's been running for way too long. And so the long-term energy plan announced yesterday says enough is enough. They've curtailed that program. And I think they really deserve credit for you know, stop for stopping digging that hole deeper. I, I, I think that you know it's, it's it's something that I haven't seen other people commenting on, but it really does represent a, a step in the right direction. Well, and that's the sort of thing I think we've been looking for for the last couple of years now, because a lot of it has been rhetoric, and, and from the opposition parties and from the government as well. Tom, uh, we're going to cancel these contracts. We're going to stop this. Uh, stop that. Uh, but as consumers were saying, well, that's fine. That that's maybe st- stops the flow and, and and some of the insanity that was going on. But what about reducing rates right now? Uh, what there, you just talked about, is that actually going to help you, me, with our hardware bills in January and February? What I was just talking about doesn't help us in January. What it does is, you know, um, uh, we have been digging the hole deeper um, uh, there have been a lot of stupid programs along the way that have you know, made the, the situation worse, not better. So the, the first solution, you know, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Yeah. Uh, you know, we get to that, you know, just on this particular point of, of the, uh, uh, the subsidies, the curtailing subsidies for low displacement generation uh, um, on-site at industrials, that, you know, the government gets some credit for that. But that's not, you know... Um, that's in the that's that's the type of medicine that if you got a headache, stop banging your head against the wall kind of solution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it it it's it's not much of a comfort um, uh, for you know the household, the small business that, that can't uh, um, meet their bill, um, um, or you know cover their uh, electricity invoice. The big uh, you know so uh, while it's been crediting the government for you know reversing some some dumb policies. There are other pieces of this uh, uh, new proposal, the new plan that they announced, that really do make Ontario's overall energy situation a good deal worse. Um, uh, one piece of it that, that I'm really quite worried about: they, they the government has continued in this most recent plan to uh, uh, commit to saddling natural gas customers with a product they call mobile natural gas, um, uh, bringing to the natural gas bill the same kind of misery that has been brought to your electricity bill from your green energy policies. Um, uh, there, there are uh, sources of, um, of, of methane out there from things like landfill gas um, uh, that can be uh, usefully used, you know, f- um, uh, for industrial purposes, that kind of thing. But trying to put that fuel into pipelines means that you have to go through a very expensive step of cleaning up those uh, uh, waste stream gases to get them to pipeline quality uh, grades. And that is just a crazy expensive thing. Europeans do some of this uh, with uh, renewable natural gas, and it's one of the reasons that European natural gas prices are sky high compared compared to those we pay in, in North America. 
so uh, here's the I, just to carry on with your your digging the hole metaphor though uh, you know we've we've stopped digging and that's the good news I guess but it, it sounds to me with what Mr. Tebow said yesterday that uh, they haven't put the shovel away they just said we're not going to use it for a while uh, because obviously as soon as this is over as you mentioned the election uh, it, there's a pretty good chance that these things are going to go back in again uh, so we're, we're getting short term relief here I suppose. But uh, but I'm concerned about the long haul here and, and the fact that rates are going to go up, well, significantly. I mean, when you talk about an increase of 43%, uh, that's, again, I think, anyway, Tom, putting us back in the same scenario where people are going to be sitting there saying, okay, do I pay the mortgage or the hydro bill this month? We're not that far away from that again. No, no that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, if you look at what they announced yesterday, um, uh, their short-term rate relief for the residential customers in, in terms of this borrowing program that, um, uh, that the government calls a fair hydro plan. Uh, there's also relief for the large industrial customers that get the benefit of a lot of uh, uh, special programs and whatnot. What you don't see a word about, and I'm just really worried about, is the middle market. So these are uh, medium-sized uh, commercial and industrial customers um, uh, they, they are, the balloon is getting squeezed where the residential, the small volume, and the big industrial are getting relief, but the, the poor guys in the middle, which is a big chunk of the Ontario economy, they're picking up the slack for all of this stuff. The long-term energy plan that was announced yesterday is completely silent on the rate outlook uh, if you're trying to run some kind of medium-sized manufacturer, uh, I, I think the rate outlook for those poor people is is looking very miserable. Well, and that's one of the elements. Uh, again, we'll go to the next level of government that uh, that I think a lot of small businesses tried to bring up when they started talking about uh, Finance Minister Morneau's uh, revisions, to use his phrase, uh, for for the uh, small business tax. Uh, because you you have look at that, and then you you can't look at it in isolation. For small business folks, they're also looking at the cost of doing business, which is hydro, and that is still significant. And there's a pretty good chance that that's going to start skyrocketing again in the next well, I guess what twelve to eighteen months anyway. And and that's causing, I think, a great deal of angst in the business community. That's why chambers of commerce right across the province right now are saying, "Whoa, just hold on here." Well, uh, the, the large industrial customers have very effective professional representation. Um, um, they, they've got, uh, you know, a trade association that represents the large uh, electricity consumers, and they've been very effective in lobbying and, uh, you know, uh, keeping uh, their their con- concerns uh, in front of the politicians at Queen's Park. The, the, the medium-sized you know, uh, uh, businesses have been ex- just very ineffective in um, uh, making sure that their interests are represented. It's true that the Chambers of Commerce have kind of been speaking up on this, but I don't see much evidence that they've been effective. Um, uh, and, you know, you, you look to the long-term energy plan, they, they provide, uh, uh, the government provides a price forecast um, for the residential customer class, um, uh, saying that in, at least in the near term, you know, there's going to be the benefit of the borrowing program. There's a price forecast for the large industrial customers where the government is promising to keep the uh, pace of, in, of the increases to the rate of inflation. But there's silence on how um, the small and medium-sized businesses are going to get treated. And I think that silence means that they're in for trouble. Exactly. Part of the frustration here, and I know in some of your previous comments, I think you touched on this briefly, Tom, is that uh, we can look through this document right now in this policy, and there certainly are a number of shortcomings that need to be addressed here. But you look at the other two options right now from both the NDP and the PCs, um, there's not a lot to choose from here to, to, to point to any of these two and say, well, that one would be better. We simply don't know. I, I haven't heard any other good ideas coming from anybody. Yeah, I, 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 think, that's, I, I think that's a fair uh, comment. In the, in the case of the, uh, the NDP, um, uh, they've been very much uh, uh, supportive of the push for uh, wind and solar. Uh, they, they've been very supportive of the push for the subsidized energy conservation programs. 
Um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the case of the PCs, um, they have some proposals that are going to be debated at their upcoming policy conference. Um, uh, so they, you know, they, but they haven't really declared on on where they're headed. Uh, you know, m m my recommendation is is you know to, to focus primarily on stopping digging the hole deeper um, uh, and then getting some transparency on where we actually stand. Uh, I think some of these contracts need to get reviewed to find if there's you know means for us to get out of them without uh, big penalties. Um, uh, so I, I, I you know, I, I, I think there is a, a positive path forward, but there really are no magic bullets. I, I, I don't see um, uh, any easy solutions for getting out of what, what's really been a, a decade or more is, Really gross negligence on behalf of Queen's Park. Well, exactly. And I mean, you know, they've got some concepts. I mean, you know, when we talked with Andrea Horvath about that, you know, they talked about buying back some of those uh, shares that have been sold on Hydro. Well, you know, who's going to pay for that? Well, probably you and me are going to pay for that. If, if, if there's even a willing seller, we're not even sure if that would happen. And and then, of course, the, as you mentioned, the Conservatives are being pretty blase and uh, nondescript about what they're offering right now. I mean, cancelling contracts sounds wonderful, but, Tom, history shows us that every time they, a new government gets elected and they say, okay, we're going to kill such and such, it costs we, the taxpayers, millions of dollars because of those clauses that are always included in those deals about compensation if the contracts are cancelled. And you got to figure that's the case here, too. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think the, on the cancellation of contracts issue, the, the 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 way to go there is to is to troll through those uh, existing contracts and find where there are opportunities. I think there are opportunities to uh, do a better job protecting uh, customers from the uh, the consequences of existing contracts. But just simply saying, you know, we're, we're going to wipe them all out, I, I, I really don't think that's the solution. Well, uh, just to finish off with that same metaphor you've been using through this whole thing, we're still in the hole. <laughs> and I'd like to think that we're going to start climbing out of it eventually. We can only hope. Tom, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for this today. Terrific, Bill. Thanks so much. Take care. Appreciate Tom, it. Yep. Tom Adams, of course, independent energy and environmental consultant, talking about uh, the Ontario government's long-term energy plan. Short-term, yeah, it's, it looks pretty good. They got us through the winter, but... Uh, I share his concerns about what's going to happen in the long term here for us businesses and for you and me as consumers. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's time for the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio. Good to see you again. How you been? Very good, Boyle. Thanks for having us on today. Uh, well, good to have you here. Lots of stuff to talk about today. Uh, we had a discussion uh, earlier in the week uh, with uh, Clint Twalden, of course, uh, from the Police Association, and uh, it had to do with an article that Susan Claremont had written uh, for The Spectator uh, about the use of carbines uh, and, and, first of all, having them out on the street. Other uh, jurisdictions have done that. Uh, it's uh, it's not a new issue. I guess it's been kicked around here for the last little while. Uh, it was interesting to get uh, Clint's ideas about this and, of course, Susan, who wrote the article. But I, I want to get your read on this, too, because it's it's there and uh, there's no decision been made on this yet. Where What's the status and, and what are your thoughts on this? Uh, actually, we have reviewed it a number of times and we've had case submissions made. Um, it is a complex issue. It's not just a matter of issuing uh, a firearm that has... Uh, one of the things with a, a carbine is the penetration of the round that comes out. So in an urban setting, uh, I'm very conscious of use of force. If somebody fires that in an urban setting, how far does the round go? What's the potential for lethality? Um, in what setting can you use it or not? There's also tactical considerations, uh, particularly in, you know, I, I look at Meyerthorpe, for example, and mm -hmm. they've done the post-analysis on that. So here you have a skilled hunter who is used to tracking moving targets, being obviously deer or bear or whatever he happened to hunt, uh, with a scope at a distance. Um, he has a tactical advantage both to experience um, tactics on how to approach and conceal himself. And if I have a fairly junior officer with a, with a carbine, and I understand in certain circumstances it could be very handy, 
But in a rural setting, uh, often we want to wait for those being our emergency response unit if there's nothing extremely pressing. Obviously, you got somebody to the fire that's pressing. Um, to respond to that call with the capabilities that they have, um, the defensive gear that they have, including, you know, uh, armor that is body armor that is much better, uh, other s- uh, considerations, plus they're working as a team. So this is a complex issue about should you or shouldn't you. We currently do have uh, shotguns in use. We also know that most of the lethal interactions that happen at firefights are generally in its range of 7 to 10 feet, happen within about 2 to 5 seconds, and happen within uh, mostly urban settings. So we've got to do all these considerations on this. So when you start issuing uh, carbines, you have to be aware of that. We do have carbines that are issued to our uh, tactical unit. And of course they have both the training. Uh, there are things that have to do with firearms in terms of sightings for the person using the weapon or you go to a generalized setting. Um, I also know from you know some of my background in the military uh, what the penetration power is of, in this case, you know, a NATO 7.63 round. Carbons are slightly different. Um, I- the killing distance, all those things, arc of fire, um, crossfire situations. Uh, it really does require extensive training to use it safely. And I'm concerned not only for the safety of the officers, which is paramount, but also safety of the public here. Why then would you not have those same concerns, uh, for instance, uh, with the tactical unit, if, if they're deployed to a situation like that, because they are using those weapons? Uh, one of the things is they work as a team. Uh, so you have a much larger unit that will work in concert to uh, engage, in this case, a lethal uh, a target. And uh, they also have less than lethal force options at their disposal as well. We do too, uh, out in the front line, and that could be pepper spray, that can be mm-hmm. uh, a taser. They have other equipment as well. I'm not going to get into all their tactics, um, but they work as a team. They also train for it uh, routinely, and uh, they're looking at engaging and neutralizing, meaning not killing somebody, but taking away the threat of that. If that means arrest and the put person puts their firearm down, that's what we're aiming for. Um, so if you get into a firefight situation in an urban setting with uh, automatic weapons, which we've seen down in the States, um, where those rounds go and who gets uh, impacted. If you remember that bank robbery in L.A. Uh, where they came, they were suited right up with body armor. They had armor-piercing rounds, the bad guys, and then the officers were responding. They, in fact, had rifles. Well, they were uh, not in a, uh, a superior position of firepower, and there was a lot of injuries as a result of that. In fact, I, I saw a recent um, documentary on it. Uh, some of those rounds were going through drywall, wood, and otherwise, and hitting people who were concealed behind those um, in small buildings like a Photoshop or something uh, when we used to have those um, and were, you know, uh, had serious injuries to their legs and whatnot. So um, this requires, the, like, the response. If we can contain and keep people safe until we have the proper people respond, in that case in L.A., Ultimately, it was the, the tactical unit that responded and took those two people out. I do realize it was a frontline officer uh, who shot one of the people, but it really required a tactical response. If that were to happen, uh, would everybody, if, if the, 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 the police service here decided to do this, as others have, and, and, and actually deploy these and, and have these in use in, in cruisers around town, would everybody have to be trained on that weapon then? No, no, and we've looked at that, and it's even the same with our shotguns. We have officers who get that training specifically, who are confident with the weapon, taking them out. And, of course, even with a shotgun, you have a range of um, uh, rounds that you can place, and you have a slug, and you have uh, birdshot, and you have a whole other thing. Uh, And you have to understand what the nature of that ammo will do in what situation. So it requires that extra piece of uh, training, knowledge, tactics, um, so were we to do it, and, and if it comes to that, and, and it's not that we've um, uh, not employed it in terms of a possibility, uh, we have to be very strategic about how we do that. I can tell you that um, I have sought out um, advice from our ERU trained people, one of them being our Deputy Kinsella and Deputy Weatherall, both of them, and both had serious concerns about, um, no, it shouldn't go to everybody, and it requires a great amount of training and also this larger picture. So these are officers who've actually been deployed in tactical situations with the training, with the background, who say, you know, we got to really look at this thoughtfully. And I think if you look across um, both the province and the country, often with OPP or RCMP, they'll be in detachments that are very remote, uh, that their tactical unit will not be arriving for an hour, hour and a half. Uh, We're usually not in that situation. So um, 
how we deploy, it's not the same as a rural setting. Uh, the considerations, uh, even in um, you know New Brunswick, uh, in many cases, from what I've seen, I don't have full exposure, but uh, this guy snuck up behind him and shot him in the back. Well, if I have a, a rifle or I have a sidearm or shotgun, really makes no difference. It would be what firearm I'm holding when I'm shot in the back. Um, so there's those considerations. It's not quite as simple, I don't think, as... But, yeah, but that opens up a whole different dis- part of the discussion, doesn't it? I'm, yes, and we it should mention, by the way, since you've referenced it, uh, that the, the reason this, this whole topic came up about carbines uh, uh, was because of that uh, incident, of course, in Moncton a couple of years ago. The judicial inquiry has wrapped Correct. up, and one of the recommendations was to consider doing this with other police services. But in the Moncton situation, if I recall, though, Chief, uh, it was those those are RCMP officers. That was not local police. Correct. And the so under- you got to ask yourself: Was there even a tactical unit available to them? I I, I don't right. know the answer to yeah. that. I mean, right. and I, I used the the analogy when we were talking about it on the show the other day. Of, of small towns in Ontario. You know, you know, we spend some time up in Collingwood, Blue Mountain area. The mm-hmm. OPP patrol that area. There's no local police force there. Right. If, if an incident were to happen, God yes. forbid, it would be the OPP that would have to respond to that. Well, they don't have a tactical unit in Collingwood. I'm That's sure there right. is someplace, but it could That's be in right. Barrie. It could be anywhere else. So expediency, I think, has to be a factor here. That's right. And then that's a question of being overpowered by whoever and the firearms they have and all the rest. But it's also the prevalence in those communities of long arms, which is more prevalent in country settings, rural settings. So that's a consideration as well. Um, Relative to the inquiry, um, and we're waiting for the transcripts of that trial. We've made the request for that. Uh, so I've not seen, un- beyond what I've heard from uh, the media reports of the judge's comments. I want to see what the judge actually said uh, before we consider that. The other thing in the RCMP, they'd already decided to issue carbines. So they'd made that decision. The problem is they hadn't done it in a timely manner, as I understand it, from the comments I've seen. Well, that's a different consideration. That means they decided to go forward, and then the firearms just weren't available because of know, administrative issues or costings or I don't know what. So it's a different dynamic. And I don't think you can just transpose um, certain rural settings to our particular situation. I have to be conscious of how it works here in the city of Hamilton. How far do you go with training? And and I'm talking about obviously at the police college, not just here in the local area, uh, to have officers prepared for any eventuality that could happen. And we've seen incidents even here in the Hamilton area in the last couple of years, where you think, my gosh, I mean, I, I'm sure that officer didn't anticipate something like that happening when they went on duty that particular day. Uh, you can't train everybody for everything in situations like that. I know that was one of the factors that was being discussed in the Moncton situation, too, as to whether or not those officers were properly trained in dealing with a, 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 a situation like that, with a, a gunman on the loose. And clearly there, there seemed to be some problems there in the way that that, that was handled. Uh, how do you learn from that, and how do you apply that to the training that goes on to your officers? I mean, and, and it's, we call it the T word in many cases because training is viewed as the solution to many, many things, and I get that. Um, you've just mentioned experience. Um, you learn through doing the job. We train as much as we can for those situations that will present. You know, the high-risk, high-frequency calls. Um, you know, if it's low-frequency, high-risk, we have to consider that as well. If it's low-frequency, low-risk, that's a different consideration. So there's the prioritization of training. As you can see, and in Toronto, they recently came out with an advocacy group around de-escalation. We've been focusing on de-escalation in our training. Obviously, our response to our mobile crisis rapid response team uh, we have looked at de-escalation. We were one of the first services uh, in Canada to uh, frontline issue of tasers uh, or conducted energy weapons, which is the generic term. Mm-hmm. Um, what we wanted is less lethal options in the hands of the front line. And, I mean, the interesting dynamic, and I had to review all the use of force submissions for use of our conducted energy weapons. And I've said it's, it's, it's very interesting, although, you know, if you look at it fundamentally, it makes sense. If I point a firearm at you and you're in a, a crisis of, um, you know, whatever the situation is, you may or may not respond. Strangely enough, if I hold up a taser and spark it, people will go, okay, okay. Whether it's a sense of immediate pain or otherwise, uh, why that is, I don't know. Uh, I'm glad that people will respond to our commands with a taser that's less than lethal and either put down the knife they have or the bar, uh, usually not a firearm because a taser is not a, an appropriate level of response to a firearm, but you may have one officer with a taser, one officer with a firearm, depending on how the call goes. If we get compliance and de-escalation and no use of force, that's what we're aiming for. So the training piece on de-escalation has been there. 
these considerations as things change, and you've talked about situations either in the States or elsewhere, we do pay attention to those. And can we learn from them? Can we take different approaches? Are there different avenues to have a safe outcome? Not just for the affected person, but keeping in mind the public who may be influenced. So if I've got a person with an automatic farm, we just saw it in Vegas, um, this is a lethal, lethal situation, and they've talked about it. Um, I don't know too many people who can take a shot with a carbine on the 32nd floor with a guy who's inside a building and accurately take them out. I don't know that many snipers could. Um, as you know, they responded up to the, uh, the 32nd floor and did what they did. Um, I don't even know the post analysis of that yet or what happened other than I know we had video equipment and a whole range of other things. So we try and learn from those experiences we do. Are there other approaches? Yes. Uh, if I could give training for, you know, six years at low cost before people even get on the job, it'd be fantastic. But some of the things you have to learn on the job, um, some of it is human dynamics. Are you good at speaking to people? Can you de-escalate through just talking? I know when I started the job, you know, somebody pointed out to me and said, your most effective weapon, and they point to their mouth and their head. And it's true. If you can not have to go to force, that is always a better outcome. If it takes longer, we had a recent situation with a hostage barricaded person, went on for three days. There was pressure to say, well, you know, we should get this over with. No. If it takes resources to have a safe outcome and it takes three days, that's how long it takes. Because when you look at the post-trauma, um, other considerations, SIU investigations, the trauma, not only the person, uh, but the officers and everybody else. If I've got to sit and wait till somebody decides to put the knife down, I'll sit and wait. The concern here is, and we don't want to see anything happen like what happened in Vegas, certainly, uh, or in, in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, or down in, in Texas last year when you know there was some guy standing up in a garage firing down on people. But there are more guns on the street now than there used to be. I mean, that, that, that stats seem to bear that out these days. So I, I think there is an elevated level of concern about what might happen here. Maybe not to the same degree, but, I mean, a firearm is a firearm. And, and I want to uh, talk to you about that because I think that's something that a lot of people are getting concerned about because we, we do hear of incidents now of gunplay, some people being shot. They're usually uncooperative. Uh, and you'll hear the phrase from police that, well, it was a targeted uh, attack in situations like that. But there can be uh, people, innocent bystanders, that can be affected by that. And I think that's the concern a lot of people are sharing these days. Uh, definitely. And, you know, again, a consideration is if you get into a firefight situation in an urban setting, whether we're firing the rounds or they're firing the rounds, you have to, you know, there's safety issues about where that round is going. We know the penetration power of many of the high-powered rifles that are out there. Uh, these are all considerations. It's fine to say, well, that was the target and I was aiming for it. And, uh, oh, the round went elsewhere. Uh, we're responsible for wh whether you have a handgun or whether you have a rifle. We as a police are responsible for th where that round goes. And these are very difficult, s stressful situations. Um, you talk about the training again, to have the presence of mind, and I know they do it in the military, about where that round will go under those situations, it's not easy. Um, the other thing you don't want to get into is some huge firefight in the middle of the city. Um, if you saw... Uh, the shooting down in Vegas, and no, I'm sorry, not in Vegas, uh, in the bank and that holdup, um, it, it was thousands and thousands of rounds from both sides, and it was penetrating business offices. People cowered in the corner, rightfully so. Um, there are considerations when you get in this situation. If you don't have to have a firefight situation, probably better outcome. If it comes to that, again, you want people who are trained, have the resources, the tactics, the additional equipment to do that in as safe as manner as possible. How often are, are frontline officers trained? I mean, you do have a tactical unit, and I know that they practice. I know some of the people that used to be at various times have been on in that that unit. But for the frontline officers, uh, in, in the use of, of, in their case, handguns, I guess, obviously, yeah. how to use them, when to use yep. them, et cetera, like that, and, and practicing, I guess, obviously. Does that happen on a regular basis? It's on an annual basis. It's prescribed by the regulation under adequacy and effectiveness under the Police Services Act. That's the minimum. Uh, officers can choose to come in and do active practice if they, in fact, have a, a range safety officer and under certain conditions. Uh, but I would say the training component, um, you know, not to be kind of trite, but it happens on a daily basis. Uh, you do post-analysis of the call you were just at, not in a firefight situation, but anytime you interact with the public and you think, and I remember this as a young officer, watching different officers handle different situations, and I thought, boy, I really like that technique. I'm going to try that. Or, no, that was a good outcome. I realized it looked like he wasn't moving quickly, um, but, and they've talked about it, you know, are you listening to hear somebody uh, communicate with you? Because if you're not listening, 
that doesn't allow for communication. It can be as simple as that. So yes, there's use of force, but keeping in mind our lowest level use of force is officer presence and tactical communication. Tactical communication can be as simple as, uh, Bill, how are you today? Or I'm Eric, uh, your name? They may or may not tell me, but you may say, no, I'm Bill. No, hi, Bill. And you talk to somebody on a human basis. That it can be as simple as opening that bridge to the discussion. Um, now, if a guy's got a firearm and I'm at distance, I may be using a loudspeaker or other techniques. Um, but it's that type of uh, ongoing basis. But yes, for use of force, uh, it is mandated on a yearly basis. Interesting discussion. We have to do a break, though. We'll come back. Got lots more to talk about with the chief. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We are uh, in the middle of the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gerd, is with us in studio. We will go to your calls in a couple of minutes. Uh, you uh, had a cold case arrest uh, this week. Uh, I know we can't get much into the particulars about the case itself, but it does raise the question about ongoing investigations. And this one actually was from quite some time ago. Uh, before we get into the specifics of that, talk to us, if you could, Chief, about about those investigations. Uh, you know, when you don't hear something for a while, it kind of falls off our radar right now. But my understanding uh, from talking to some of the folks in police services is these, these cases are still on somebody's radar every now and then. How does that process work? Uh, they are, and uh, I'll, I'll extend the metaphor. It's not cold, but it's not frozen. Uh, so they always remain open. We're always interested in additional information. We do know to solve most of these cases, and I made this uh, comment before in the show, is we solve crimes through information. The forensics often helps us. Uh, and yes, sometimes you can substantiate a case in the forensics alone, but usually it's information, and, and it's information for people who were there at the time. Uh, we have a number of other cold cases where we know there were witnesses to uh, what happened, who are either unwilling to come forward or a little scared for a whole variety of reasons. We do have crime stoppers. If uh, they require anonymity, we'll take the information if it helps us. Um, in this case, and you saw Michael Palmer's mother, Shirley, speak at the mic and make a plea for any additional witnesses, because we still do have two suspects outstanding in the Michael Palmer homicide. And as you said, it's from 2005, so it's 12 years old. And, uh, you know, Jermaine Dunkley has now been charged and, and going to face that uh, charge before the courts. He currently faces other charges in other jurisdictions. Um, so we're always interested in solving this. And you can see the impact. And the reason I cite his mom is this never goes away for the victims and the survivors. And, uh, you know, there's some resolution. I won't say that it's complete closure or complete, um, you know, uh, making peace with it. Uh, it's different for everybody who's impacted by those, but we do know that when people are held accountable and arrested, and then you have the court process as well, uh, that that can be therapeutic to those people. So um, we also, with cold cases, as we have turnover in our homicide detectives, we will reassign those, um, and you'll have a new investigator look at the files, and they may uh, find something new. Uh, in terms of correlations or connections and trend or uh, go down a different path in terms of an investigative process. So we do that on a routine basis. Some of ours date back even to the 70s and 80s. Uh, we're always interested in information. We know that time changes things for people and their perspective. We have people uh, change their points of view or their life circumstances. We're more than willing to interview anybody with uh, information, certainly on homicides, but any crime. And, uh, you know, we also have sexual assaults that date back to the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, we still investigate those and the disclosures. Sometimes the, the uh, accused person has passed. Uh, in those cases, obviously, we're not investigating for criminal charges. Um, but where the suspect may still be alive, we're interested in that. It, it's interesting how, how this whole process evolves. And, and well, all of a sudden, when you get an announcement like this, you always wonder, I guess, uh, you know, was was the new information that came forward? Was it just a different perspective? Uh, somebody called that, that previously had changed their testimony or something like that. I guess there can be any number of different things. But is is it usual for somebody like that to call out of the blue and said, hey, are you guys still investigating such and such? Well, well as you know, and I guess maybe you turn to popular culture, the fact that if you're a witness to it or participate in it, it's got a way on you. 
you know, you, you saw the event. You haven't done anything about it. Well, you it. know, the one that comes to mind as we're talking about this, and, and my buddy Roy Green would remember this because Roy was instrumental in, in, in really kind of providing the vehicle for this. There was a hit and run that happened way back, I think it was in the 70s, yep. on West 5th. That's right. And and uh, Paul Gal, who was working at the spec at the time, did some investigative reporting, and he and Roy uh, did some work on this. And they finally, I guess after about 20-odd years, I think it was, actually found the guy. This had to do, actually, it was a young man hit on Parkdale Avenue, uh, the accused person, because he eventually was charged with the offense, uh, moved down to the state shortly thereafter, yeah, yeah. hid the car for a number of years, um, and our investigator in the in the collision reconstruction unit, then called Failed to Remain, Bob Giles, uh, pursued that because uh, there was a, a media interview of this person down in the States, <clears throat> and we got some disclosures during that interview that were then forwarded on, and we pulled up that case again, and in fact... Um, he was arrested, held in custody down in the States. We made an application for extradition. And at the end of the day, he spent um, a number of years in custody. Uh, was quite affluent and uh, had built a new life in the States. Um, and it was, it was the late, uh, late, or I'm sorry, it was either the late 60s or early 70s mm-hmm. when the offense happened. Um, but Bob did a tremendous job. I remember I was in traffic when he was working on that file. And uh, he was very tenacious and um, explored some new law, too, because now you're dealing with, uh, you know, two countries, the Extradition Act. How does it work? What does it apply to? Uh, But to your point, it was information that came forward as a result of a journalist interviewing this person who knew something about this and then put the question to him. So that's not excluded in terms of information we might get. And to your earlier list of how those things can happen... It can be one of those things. It can be a combination of those things. Uh, but usually it's the information that's critical to us. And as you know, in Michael Palmer's homicide, we're still looking out because we have those two suspects, four additional witnesses to come forward. I, I'm going to get to your calls in a second. Frank, you'll be first up, I promise you, if you're listening right now. Uh, but is there statute of limitation on some of those things? Um, unlike the states, and you'll hear it a lot in the sexual yeah, offenses cases, yeah. uh, our, our law does not work that way. Difficulty in proving cases that are 30, 40, 50 years old, yes, it's more difficult. Witnesses have passed. You've got uh, memories that fade or altered. Um, it raises difficult issues in court, but it's not insurmountable. All right, to your phone calls, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Chief of Police Eric Gert is here. The Chief's Town Hall, the Bill Kelly Show here at 900 CHML. Frank, thank you for holding on. How are you this morning? I'm fine. Thank you, uh, Bill, and good morning, uh, Eric. I've got a bee in my bonnet. It's been festering for as long as it had to be uh, re- with result of the accidents that are always occurring on the Red Hill Creek Expressway. Now, I know that, um, well, for one thing, a photo radar has been beat around, and it's just, that's what's bothering me. It's been beat around. Now, I just think it's time for the law to be enforced in the best way manner. We've had, um, by comparison, uh, many more accidents on that Red Hill than we had anywhere else in this community, for that matter. And I, I want to know what the holdup is as to whether you you yourself feel that the photo radar would be effective, uh, why the public outcry is overruling the logistics of having it done to keep the people contained. Uh, you can't put your your people out there to risk their own lives to chase it chase people on a twisting winding road as that one is it seems to me that we just gotta buckle our belts and take it as it is as we are citizens that that are trying to keep ourselves safe to advocate that this must be done your your comments please I'm going to uh, hang up on you here, and then I'll listen to you, okay? Appreciate it. Thanks <laughs> okay. so much. Thank you. Thanks, I, Frank. I appreciate you just hanging up and listening as opposed to hang, uh, hanging up and not listening. Um, no, and an important question. Uh, I agree with you. I've been public about this before. You know, as a chief of police, I support photo radar. Uh, I remember when it was introduced. Again, I was in traffic at the time. And even as a citizen, watching the change on the 400 series highways where we had uh, photo radar and the change in driver behavior, which to me was the goal and increase public safety. So I certainly support it. I have driven down uh, in the eastern provinces where they have uh, radar along uh, many of the highways, and you see a change in the behavior. Uh, I do know that the city uh, can enact in certain safety zones and high-risk areas uh, photo radar, and I do know there's an appetite amongst a number of councillors to do so. Um, so it's it's not kind of my bailiwick to do that kind of legislative well, it's, it's not your call. 
True, but you know, in terms of an opinion, yes, I support it. Do I think it's effective? I do. Uh, now, when we look at traffic safety from a broader perspective, because we're also concerned about suspended drivers, impaired drivers, um, heavy vehicle issues, uh, there's a broader dimension to traffic safety on not only that roadway, but many roadways. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm always interested in additional enforcement. We did provide additional enforcement both for the Red Hill and the Link. Um, through uh, using some uh, officers for uh, multiple tasks. We do still have the priority response system where we have to respond to domestics and disturbances and other things, but it's a balance. Traffic safety is a big part of public safety. Uh, I'd certainly support uh, photo radar. I don't think it's a cash cow generation. Do you generate cash? Yes. Is that my motivation? No. My motivation uh, for supporting it is around the traffic safety and public safety. I, you know, I always get upset when people bring that argument up that it's a cash cow, it's a tax grab, it's a cash grab, whatever phraseology they want to use on this. Uh, in a perfect world, having talked to you about this and, and Chief DeCare previously and, and anybody else, they'd say, you know what, I, in a perfect world, it'd be great if the, we didn't generate any money from it because that means everybody's complying with the law. But you know they won't. That, that's, that's the reality that we have to face. And certainly it's something the previous chief said, which is true. Uh, compliance with the law is free. And generally we stop people who are not in compliance with the law. And then, well, there's, and I guess it's maybe the auto culture or the car culture in North America. You know, I purchased a vehicle that has this many horsepower and I'm entitled because I paid forty or $50,000 to realize the performance of my vehicle. Well, if you're exceeding and you're endangering other people, my view would be, no, you don't. Um, but you've got that whole piece, and you even see it in the ads today in terms of, you know, driving on twisty roads. They have the exemptions in the bottom. They're always on a coast highway, yeah, right? That's right. Professional driver, do not tempt this. Um, but obviously, there's, there's an appeal in terms of what a motor vehicle can do. Um, you know, with the new uh, driverless cars where it's uh, automatically driven by the car, that'll be quite interesting what happens there. I was just watching a show on it, and part of the issue was uh, the driver, who still has to remain able and capable to take over if required, gets bored while the car's driving itself and kind of goes on to other tasks. Well, don't really want that either because you still have to, at a moment's notice, if things change that beyond the vehicle's capabilities, respond to that. So um, this is a tension, but again, as a solution, I would support photo radar. Uh, you know, if you're getting tickets and it's adding up, it can be a detriment to continuing your behavior. What about the other element of this? In, in the absence of photo radar, and I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon on the, the link and on the Red Hill, but enforcement, uh, in other words, uh, having police patrolling and, and going up and down those roadways or setting up uh, sessions like that, uh, there are those that would love to see them there all the time, but that's clearly not possible, obviously, for staffing reasons. But when you do try to do something like this, what kind of an impact does that have on the shift uh, because you've got to be, if they're there, they're not someplace else. Well, actually, it is possible. It does require resources to do so. And, you know, having worked in a traffic unit that had uh, in, you know, beyond 30 officers dedicated to traffic, which meant collision reconstruction, breathalyzer duties, uh, traffic enforcement, both removing violations and speeding and bylaw offenses. Um, yes, that generated money um, at that time for the provincial coffers. Now it's for municipal. Uh, there would have to be political will to dedicate officers strictly to traffic safety. And how we used to work in the past was if you get the big call or a larger issue of public safety, we would respond to that out of traffic. But if your fundamental duties are doing traffic enforcement, and quite frankly, I think there's a will from the public, having been out to many community meetings, and even on this show, the leading issue that we get on this show is traffic safety. Yep. The leading issue that I get out um, through all my years going to public consultations in the states back in some cases 20, 25 years, the leading issue for most citizens is traffic safety in my neighborhood or on my way to work. So if there's a political will to expand the staffing to dedicate to that, and of course I would have to present a case, go to the police service board, and then obviously to council post, um, it's an important topic. Well, uh, that's why we do the show, so people can can voice that concern. And, and uh, to your point, uh, Frank, about uh, you know getting it done and actually getting uh, radar, photo radar implemented, uh, you got to talk to your city councillors about that because ultimately it's it's going to be them that's going to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, there would be a cost to that, obviously, but uh, my understanding is that's more of a political decision. Anyway, back to your calls, 905-645-3221, star 9900. 
Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. If you want to jump in here, we've got time for one or two more calls and uh, some interesting stuff to still talk about here, including, by the way, what seems to be a rash of robberies in the last little while. What seems to be happening? Uh, we are looking, obviously, for patterns. Uh, when we look to our robberies, uh, you know, on a yearly basis, it's predominantly street robberies that involve taking either somebody's phone, um, in some case their shoes, uh, cash, uh, something else of value. And, you know, we're coming up to um, a crime prevention week, and obviously our fundamental premise is, you know, it's stuff. Give the person the stuff. We don't want anybody injured over a phone. Uh, we realize the kind of sentimental attachment and all the rest, but it's not worth it. Um, we have had a variety of uh, types of robberies in terms of some knives and the suspects as well. Some are five foot two, some are six foot four, some are twenty, some are fifty. We look for those patterns. We have made a number of arrests. Most recently, uh, in a case where a person came in uh, disguised, I'll call it with a Dolly Parton wig, and uh, it was quite a uh, muscular male that was wearing that with a short miniskirt. Is that usual? No. Would we look for patterns if that helped, happened elsewhere? Certainly. So our bear unit looks at those type of offenses. They look to other services to say, are you having similar robberies? Um, so that's on an ongoing basis. But again, for public safety, if it's really st- uh, street muggings, I'll call them, then you know, give them the property and uh, you know, ensure your own safety. We also talk about awareness, awareness of your situation. We had some recent um, uh, frauds, less robberies, but it is a theft of uh, debit cards where it's a three-person team and they're looking over the shoulder of the person using getting the PIN card. Always put your hand over that transaction when you're entering your PIN and then going to the ATM and cleaning out the funds. Um, so it's just awareness. We try and disseminate that information so you wear what the schemes might be. Also where you are, what time of day, um, what are the possibilities. We try and get the information out on areas and uh, lately, we've also been deploying our action team in those areas uh, for uh, higher visual presence, or we may do ride lanes in the areas. Uh, so we're trying to be out and present. i uh, got about a minute left. I wanted to ask you, because invariably I'll get people that will ask me about this, about uh, recruitment uh, for police services. And we always talk about staffing and things of this situation. Your department is uh, facing the same problem many city departments are these days. A lot of people are retiring. You've got a lot of folks that have been on the job for a long time. Uh, you've got to fill it up at the other end. And I understand there's a recruitment uh, a, a opportunity coming up soon. Yeah, it's a recruit information night. You can go out and listen to the steps to become a police officer in any jurisdiction. And often we will have members of our service there available. So, for example, if you're uh, you know, a young mother and you're thinking, what are the implications? We will have officers who are females, both in uniform, frontline, but specialized branches, could be detectives, could be heat. And you can talk to them and find out how it all works. Uh, we are looking to be diverse, as you know, and reflect the community that we serve. And that includes uh, in many aspects, visual diversity, linguistic diversity, cultural diversity, uh, gender diversity, GLBTQ, and we're trying to promote women in our ranks as well. We do have a good composition, but we're always trying to increase it. Uh, come out to the Recruit Information Night. It's up at the Multi-Agency Training Academy, Fire and, and Police, up on Stone Church Road, close to Nebo. And uh, it's on November 2nd, uh, but you can always go online and check the date and future dates. Uh, we're always looking to um, increase our complement. All right. Uh, we're out of time. Thanks so much. Great to see you again. Thank you, Bill. I know that you'll uh, be down at the Cenotaph for Remembrance Day. I guess I that's will. the next time you and I will hook up. But yep. lots more about that in uh, the days to come. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert, and the Chief's Town Hall. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.